Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. You know, nations have been at war with one another since recorded history. You can go back through the annals of history and see time and time again how nations have fought against nations in times of war. But what's very interesting is when you go back and you study history, how many interesting ceasefires or truces were agreed upon between warring nations. It's interesting, back during World War I, on December 24th, 1914, Germany, who was the Axis powers against England and France, those three nations decided to call a, a little truce on Christmas so they could celebrate the Christmas holiday. And so during World War II, those three nations had an unofficial treaty to have a peace during Christmas time, and it was resumed in a few days. Many of you may understand what happened during the Korean War. Back during 1953, there was what was called the DMZ, or the Demilitarized Zone. Do you realize that to this day, there has been no official peace treaty between North and South Korea? There's just the Demilitarized Zone. So technically, officially, while there's the Demilitarized Zone between the two nations, North and South Korea are technically still at war, even though they haven't fought each other for all these years. 2005, there was a ceasefire between the Israelis and the Palestinians that lasted a few days. But we know how things happen in the Mideast with hostility and ceasefires. We currently think about the war in Ukraine. Experts tell us we don't know how long this war is going to last. Is it going to be a few more months? Is it going to be a few more years? We really don't know. And so why do I bring up war and peace? Why do I bring up nations at war and then a time of peace, and then a time of conflict. Why, why do I bring that up? Well, here's a fundamental truth that the Bible teaches that we need to understand. All people are born under God's judgment, and we are all at war with God until we are reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people don't think that. They don't think that they're at war with God or that they need to be at peace with God. So the most fundamental question that any of us can ask is this. How do I have peace with the living God who is my creator? How can I have peace with God? If I'm separated from God, if I'm a sinner, and the Bible says all of us are, how do I have peace with my creator? How do, how do I no longer remain at war with a holy God? And so the answer to that question about peace with God, being at war with God, is answered in our, in our, in our scripture before us this morning. Now, 
I want us to look at the context of where we're about to land because normally we preach this passage of Scripture on Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry. But it's in a context of what happened last week. If you remember from last week, Jesus' followers were, had a misconception about His kingdom. They thought His kingdom was immediate. They thought Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem, establish the kingdom, kick the Roman Empire out, set up the throne in Jerusalem. It would be an immediate messianic coming of the kingdom. And Jesus, to kind of steer His disciples away from this misunderstanding, tells a parable. The parable of the minas, or the parable of the pounds that we looked at last week. Where Jesus says, listen, my coming, my ultimate coming and establishing the kingdom may be a long time off. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And so the point last week was, until we wait for the return of Christ, what are we to be? We are to be good and faithful servants with the time, talents, and treasures God has given us for His glory and for the advancement of the gospel. And so that's the context. Jesus will establish his kingdom ultimately one day in the future. Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There will be one day where Jesus will establish his ultimate, final, ultimate kingdom. We don't know when that will be. But the context that we've been waiting for is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We've been anticipating this all the way back to chapter 9. This kind of launches us into a new section in the Gospel of Luke that started back in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 51 When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was way back in chapter 9. Well, here we are. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. He's been in Jericho. He met the blind beggar. He met Zacchaeus. He told the parable. Now he's entering into Jerusalem on traditionally what we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday before, the Friday that he would be crucified. So, let's read together what happens next after Jesus tells this parable that we looked at last week, starting in chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. In heaven, 
and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known of this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday the Sunday before His crucifixion on Friday. And there's a lot that is going on in this passage of Scripture, but let's just distill it down to one main point for this morning. What's the big idea? What's the the one thing that we can think about that this passage of Scripture teaches us? It is this. King Jesus is the only way to experience true peace with God. King Jesus. He's coming in as King. King Jesus, He's the only way to experience true peace with God. So let's see this unfold in three descriptions. I want us to see three descriptions of King Jesus as He comes riding into Jerusalem. What does Luke show us as far as the descriptions of our King? The King that would come and die on the cross and rise again. Well, here's the first thing that Luke shows us about King Jesus. First, King Jesus has supernatural knowledge of all things. Did you catch it? Jesus tells his disciples, go to this village. And when you go to this village, you'll find a colt that's tied up that no one's ever ridden on or sat on. Untie it and bring it to me. And what happens when they go to find this colt. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent away had found it, the colt, just as he had told them. Now, did Jesus make arrangements with the owner beforehand to make sure it would happen just at that time? Or did Jesus have supernatural and sovereign authority and knowledge that that colt would be there just as God had ordained it to be there. It had to be there. As a matter of fact, in the original language, when you look at that word just, it's interesting the little words you look at in the Greek text. Just as he had told them, or exactly, some translations say exactly as he told them. Ultimately, you can look at the translation there, and it basically says it like this. It was ordained, or it was appointed, or it was predestined to be there just as God had planned it prophetically to be there. Why was that colt there at just that right time? And why did Jesus supernaturally know it was going to be there? Well, because it was prophesied. God had ordained it. What does Zechariah 9.9 say? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they go and they find the colt just as he had told them. 
Jesus sovereignly knew the cult was going to be there. God had ordained the cult to be there. It was on God's prophetic timetable. But notice what Jesus tells them to tell the owner. Okay, so those of you that own animals, ranchers, some stranger comes over to your horse and starts untying it and taking it away. What are you going to say to that person? What are you doing? And what does Jesus tell the disciples to say? The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Did you read the, did you read the text? Notice what he says. Verse 30, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied on it, which no one's ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. Okay, so they go. Then what happens? The colt's there just as Jesus had ordained it to be and prophesied that it was going to be there. And then what do the disciples start to do? They untie the colt. And what does the owner do? He comes over and says, verse 33, As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Why are you you stealing my animal? And what do they say? I love this. The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Okay, what do the owner say? We don't have an answer from the owner. All we know is the Lord has need of this colt. And what do you think the owner did? Okay, if the Lord needs it, here you go. Here's the colt. I I don't know who the Lord is, but he must need it. That should be enough. When you hear the words, the Lord has need of it, that should be enough. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He's asked for the colt. And so in a sense, Because Jesus is Lord, the owner must give up the cult. It was ordained to be that way because the Lord has need of the donkey. Now, what are the implications of this for you? What does it mean that Jesus has supernatural knowledge of all things? For some of you, that can be kind of scary. That can bring a little bit of an unsettling to your heart because he knows every detail about your life. He sees everything. He knows the secret sins that you've committed. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4.13 says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus sees everything. Jesus knows everything. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of our sovereign king. That should unsettle some of you this morning. But if you are a child of God, a believer in Jesus, that should bring great comfort to you. Because you can look at it the other way. Jesus knows everything about my life. Yeah. Or Jesus knows everything about my life. That's awesome. I'm glad he does. Because that means he's in charge. He's sovereign. Listen to what David, the psalmist, says in Psalm 139, 1-4. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. Now, that could bring you great unsettling to your heart that Jesus knows everything. Or it can bring great comfort that he knows everything that he is sovereignly in charge of every detail of your life. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're experiencing. He has a purpose that he's working out in your life, and you're in his control. Don't raise your hands, please, but let me just ask you. Do you want to be in control? 
Or do you want King Jesus to be in control? Most of us would say, I want King Jesus to be in control. But then when we leave this place, what happens? We, we're in control. We often just say, I want to be in control. So here's the ultimate issue. The Lord has need of it. The ultimate issue is Jesus is Lord and King whether you like it or not. You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. He already is Lord, regardless of what you do with Him. So the implication is we must bow before Him as the King. We sang it earlier. You are highly exalted, name above all names. Philippians 2, 9-11, that's where that song comes from. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first thing that Luke shows us is that Jesus, as the King, has supernatural knowledge of all things. And that should bring great comfort to us because he is Lord, he is master, he's king, and he, he has everything under his sovereign control. Okay, here's the second thing that Luke shows us, a description of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. Second, King Jesus is worthy of our joyous worship. Okay, Jesus gets on the colt, verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, you may ask the question, why did Jesus come riding into Jerusalem on a colt? Well, because it was prophesied, right? We saw it. But let me just give you another bit of history here. If you go back and read your Old Testament, especially if you go back to 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, the kings of Israel would often ride into Jerusalem on a colt at their coronation. When they were being coronated or anointed as king, they often too would ride in on a donkey. So, the issue is, in the people's mind, they understand, we may not understand it, but Jesus riding in on a colt would, would, would signal to the Jewish mind that this is a kingly type of thing. The kings of Israel rode in on colts. But what kind of king did they want? Remember, Jesus had just told them a parable. You guys think, I'm going to come in immediately into Jerusalem on a white horse, and I'm going to establish my kingdom, and I'm going to kick out the Roman Empire, and I'm going to set up my kingdom right now. And Jesus says, that's not going to happen. I'm going to tell a parable to show that my delay in coming back may be a long time. And so it's not going to be the immediate setting up of my, my kingdom. So they want a political leader, a political king to oust Rome. But Jesus is not going to come as this political king. He's going to come humbly on a donkey to face death on a cross. What was his mission? You go back to verse 10. Right at the end of the Zacchaeus narrative, what does Jesus say his mission is? In verse 10, the mission is to seek and to save the lost. How is he going to do that? By dying on a cross. But how do the people respond? They are excited there in verse 37. 
They rejoiced, they praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They're rejoicing, they're praising God. And this really comes in verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, so verse 38 is a quotation from an Old Testament psalm. It comes directly from Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're excited. They're joyous. They're even quoting scripture that they don't know. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so as the king, what does Jesus bring? As the king, what does Jesus bring? Did you read it carefully? Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know what I find interesting? You almost have the same exact wording from the angels at the announcement of Jesus' birth and the crowds at the announcement of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. What do the angels announce at the birth of Christ back at the beginning of Luke? Luke 2.14 Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. At Jesus' birth, the announcement is he's come to bring peace. He enters in Jerusalem, the announcement is he comes to bring peace. So the question becomes, what kind of peace? Is it a John Lennon, let's just give peace a chance type fuzzy peace? What kind of peace does the Bible talk about? The Bible talks about an objective peace, a solid, lasting peace that comes as a result of Jesus' death on the cross that brings us as enemies into his presence as friends. It only comes through the cross. It's a lasting, objective peace. Listen to how Paul defines it in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace. Not we might have peace. We have peace. Objective reality. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is this peace? What does this justification bring us? Verse 2, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this peace grants us access into the presence of God. It gives us a permanent standing of being righteous in the presence of God. We can rejoice in that. And then further on down there in chapter 5, Paul addresses this peace again and how it was accomplished through the blood on the cross. Romans 5, 9 through 10. Therefore, since we now have been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is saying that the blood of Christ shed on the cross saves us from God's wrath. And what does that mean? What is God's wrath? Well, it's not his out-of-control rage or he's throwing lightning bolts down from heaven and he had a bad hair day. And and it's just like, here's what rage is, okay? Rage is you put two toddlers in a room and give them one toy. That's rage. Wrath is God's settled, holy anger against sin where he must punish it. And so what did the blood on the cross 
accomplished. It saved us from God's justice coming down upon us. Instead of God's justice coming down upon us, Jesus in our place took that justice so we would never take it. And notice what Paul says in that passage of Scripture. Paul says we were enemies of God. That's a strong word. We were enemies of God. We were at war with God. We, were, we weren't friends with God. We weren't at peace with God. We were enemies with God. And so what Jesus has done is he's reconciled us to himself. That word reconciled means to bring back into a right relationship. It means to bring peace. It's, it means a ceasefire, a truce. The end of the warfare. There's lasting peace through Jesus. Now when you realize this, when you come to the realization that I was once an enemy of God, I was under his wrath, and yet Jesus through his blood has reconciled me as a friend to the living God. When you realize you're friends with God now, that should bring great joy and rejoicing to your heart. You should be humbled by that. You should be blown away by his mercy and his kindness towards you. So much so that you may want to shout it. Like these people here that are shouting their praises to the Lord. I mean, they're going so overboard that what do the Pharisees do? Jesus, calm your followers down. They're getting a little bit too rowdy. Notice what he says there, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to calm down. Don't get so crazy worshiping Jesus. Don't lift your voices and don't show so much joy and passion in worshiping Jesus. Calm these fanatics down. And I love what Jesus says. Well, if I shut down my disciples, guess who's going to shout even louder? These stones. See the boulders, these stones over here, Pharisees? If I shut my Pharisees up, these boulders are going to cry out even louder. You can't stop creation from worshiping me. Even inanimate objects like stones will cry out. Now, I did some research this week. I was thinking, stones that cry out, stones that sing. Are there such a thing as singing stones? And I found the answer. Google is your friend. Okay, so in the fields, there's these boulder fields in southeastern Pennsylvania and central New Jersey. It's called the Newark Basin. Okay? They actually have some national park or some state parks you can go in there. They have these boulders that are called ringing or singing rocks. Actually, scientifically, you want the, the scientific name of them? They're called lithophonic rocks. Lithophonic, lithophonic rocks. Okay, here's what happens. You can, go on, you can go on YouTube and watch this. You go out to this big boulder field, and you take a hammer. When you normally take a hammer to a rock, what does it sound like? This sounds like a handbell. You hit the rock and it dings, and you can hit the rocks and do like a handbell choir thing on these boulders. It's very weird because they look like other boulders. Now, scientists have not figured out why this is so. It's the same material, the same um, density, and all these different types of things. But in a sense, you can go to this place and find musical rocks, rocks that will cry out when you hit them. Jesus' point is this. If you've experienced the peace of Christ that comes through the forgiveness of your sins, you can't help but let it out. And if you're not going to let it out, the rocks will let it out. Now, here's the question. Are rocks saved? Have you ever met a saved rock? Have you ever met a born-again rock? If you have, come see me after service because I'd love to have your conversation with you. I've never met a born-again rock. But what's the point? 
If we as God's children don't cry out, don't exuberantly praise him, don't, don't be outdone by a rock. Even a rock that when you hit it with a hammer, it's going to sing for you. Jesus says to his Pharisees, listen, if I tell these disciples to be quiet because I'm king and I'm worthy of all worship, these rocks will cry out. These rocks will cry out. So the second thing we see about Jesus is he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of joyous worship. He's the king. He's forgiven us. He brings peace. But here's the third thing. King Jesus has compassion toward sinners. Notice verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the original language here, the word wept is not like a sobbing, like a little bit of snob sobbing. The Greek word there actually conveys an outburst of an emotional type of sobbing, like an uncontrollable wailing. Jesus is wailing and truly has compassion for this city, the city that just a few days later is going to crucify him. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. I wonder if that describes you this morning, like a sheep without a shepherd. You feel aimless, you feel lost, you're, you're wandering, you don't quite know what's going on, you feel helpless, you feel trapped, you're in your sin. I've got really good news for you today. Those are the kind of people Jesus loves to save. Jesus loves to save those who admit that they are hopeless and helpless and hellbound and they're sheep that don't know what's going on, that are clueless and that can't do anything to save themselves. Those that come to the end of their ropes and admit that they need a Savior, those are the type of people Jesus loves to save. And have not we seen those people? Who have we seen over the past few weeks? Well, if you go all the way back to chapter 18, we saw a tax collector beat his breast and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's like sheep without a shepherd. We've seen a tax collector. We've seen a blind beggar cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. We've seen a blind beggar. And then a few weeks ago, we saw a wee little man, Zacchaeus, go into, uh, Jesus comes into his house and he's saved by grace, an outrageous sinner. And so Jesus is weeping over the city. But for the city, at that time in history, it one day it would be too late. Verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What's Jesus saying to Jerusalem? You're blind to what's going on here, Jerusalem. You're not seeing that I am the king, the Messiah that's coming to bring peace. As a matter of fact, they're going to crucify him just a few days later. The city of Jerusalem is going to cast Jesus outside the gates to Golgotha where he will be abandoned and, and, and left for dead on the cross. They missed out on peace because what was 
the message that the people were singing in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace. Jesus comes to bring peace. And he says there in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. See, here's a dire warning that Jesus gives in this passage. Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. About 40 years later, what was going to happen. He says it right there in verse 43. For the days will come upon you. And this, this happened in, literally and historically in AD 70. The Roman troops came in. They ransacked the city. They burned down the temple. Jerusalem fell. For these days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. He's talking about Jerusalem. And surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus gives a warning here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're going to kill me. The way you kill the prophets beforehand, you are so blind to the fact that right now the Prince of Peace is standing before you. You're going to kill me and it's going to come back to haunt you because in AD 70, the armies are going to march in and you're going to be destroyed because you did not know the day of your visitation. You rejected your Messiah. I want you to pay close attention to that last phrase there. You did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know that Israel was going to be destroyed in AD 70. They didn't know the troops were going to come in and tear the, the city down. They did not know the time of the visitation. Now, it was a visitation by Roman troops that ultimately was God's judgment on Israel. God's judgment on Jerusalem. But let me ask you a question. Today is the day of your visitation. Because God has given you today an opportunity to hear the gospel about Jesus as the only one that can bring you peace with God through His, his cross. And what happens when you hear a message today? Today. It was read earlier in our call to worship. Psalm 95, 6-8. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. And let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of visitation. Today is the day to make sure you have peace with God. Today is the day to make sure you have salvation. Don't pass up this opportunity the way that they did back then and then have to wait on the final day of visitation. Do you realize there was a day of visitation in A.D. 70? The Roman troops came in and destroyed Jerusalem, A.D. 70. 70 A.D. It was a day of visitation on Jerusalem. And as, and as bad as that was for Israel and for the, the city of Jerusalem, it was terrible. But there's going to be a day of visitation in the future. There's the ultimate day of visitation. You see, on the day of visitation, it's called the day of judgment. It's the day that Jesus comes back. And if you have not made peace with God, it will be too late on that day of visitation when Jesus comes back. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 says this, When the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Jesus rode into Jerusalem humbly on a colt in fulfillment of prophecy with palm branches and people crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But on that final day of visitation, Jesus will not come humbly on a colt, but he will come boldly on a white horse. And he will come again in power and glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. As a matter of fact, how does the book of Revelation describe this? Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That's just another word for crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the ultimate day of visitation. But today is a day of visitation. Because you've heard the gospel. You've heard the message. You are now responsible to receive what Jesus has come to bring in his cross. And the promise is, is that Jesus stands ready, willing, and able to receive all who would come to him in repentance and faith. Jesus never turns away anybody that comes to him in repentance and faith. And so my, my plea to you is today. Make sure it's today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't be like the Israelites here who, who missed out the opportunity. Don't wait for that final day today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, today, if you hear his voice, would you repent of your sins? And would you believe in Jesus? And would you receive the free gift of salvation that only comes through what Jesus accomplished on the cross? And what did he accomplish? Peace. Jesus is the only way to true peace with God. And only you personally know if you have that peace. Only you know if you are at peace with your Creator. So what better day than today than to make sure you're at peace with your Creator. And if you are at peace, rejoice. Boldly, happily, joyfully give thanks to your King for saving you from your sins and giving you new life. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Spend a few time, a few moments alone with the king, either going to him for peace the very first time, or thanking him, praising him joyously that you have peace with the living God. Thank mm -hmm. you.
Heaven, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that in your providence you sent Jesus to be our only Savior, the only way of salvation. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you are the only way to true peace, that lasting state of being ultimately forgiven of all of our sins, standing in a permanent position before a holy God. Lord, help us to praise you, to thank you, to rejoice. Lord, help us. Help, let not the rocks get the better of us when it comes to praising and thanking you. And Lord, thank you that you have compassion upon sinners, that you weep and wail over those that are far from you. And we know that one day it may be too late. When that final day comes, Jesus, we don't know when that is, but you will come back. We await that day, but Lord, we want to be ready for that day. So my prayer is that everybody would not leave this place today without knowing in their heart of hearts that they have peace with you, Jesus, through your cross. And they would know you, and they would be ready. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.